Welcome, Cornerstone. How you guys doing? Uh, for those joining online, I'm glad that you guys are here, that you're joining us. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. I get to spend my time with our young adults and our students, people that I love dearly. Uh, so I have three children, uh, and they are two years apart. And uh, one of the things that I found is like a, a challenge parenting more than one kid is that they are, you know, they end up in different stages at different times, right? Like their, their interests don't all line up at the same time. So for example, uh, my oldest, Xander, uh, he'll be 10 soon, but when he turned like six or seven years old, I noticed he entered like this new phase, this new stage of life where he just loved to build and create things. Just like anything he could find, he was like stacking it, building it. He'd build like towers and cities out of his blocks. He's, you know, building like intricate track systems for his trains and just Legos, Legos for days, right? Which is like the mortal enemy of any parent, especially at like midnight when you're walking around, you can't see. But he loved to build. But his youngest sister, our youngest, Juniper at the time, is like two, three years old. And so while Xander's joy in life is building and creating, Juniper's joy in life is seeking and destroying, and so, you know where this is going, right? Like Xander, he's like putting his finishing touches on like his, his newest creation. And then Juniper, she just like runs over and like Godzilla's the whole thing. She's just like stomping through and smashing. There are pieces going everywhere. And then tears and chaos and violence just ensues. And I tell, I, oh, I empathize. I'm just like, oh, buddy, I know the pain of building something that you're proud of and having somebody come in and destroy it and want to tear it down. You know, for the last uh, couple of weeks, Brian and Aaron, they've been discussing and teaching on this idea of restoration, right? We've been reflecting on the last year of our lives and there, there's some things that need to be reclaimed, right? Some things that need to be recovered, some things that need to be repaired, uh, things like our relationships, things like our community, our heart, our identity, our inner health, our dreams. How many of y'all had a dreams that you had to put up on a shelf that now you're like, is it time? Can I, can I pick this thing back up? Our plans, our future. But truthfully, I mean, the work, the work of restoration is hard enough on its own, but, but at the same time, while, while we may be intent on restoring and building things back up in our life, there are forces of opposition that exists that will try to undermine the whole process. That as you go about and as you like build yourself up, like I'm ready, I think I'm finally ready to do this thing. Like now you, you hit pressure and resistance and opposition that will create setbacks and letdowns and just make it difficult. And the story of Nehemiah that we have been uh, reading and teaching through, their work to restore the city walls of Jerusalem, I think it provides a really helpful framework for the kind of resistance that we can experience dur during our own restoration process. And more importantly, like, what do we do when it comes? Like, that's what we really want to know. Like, yeah, I get it. Like, it, it can be hard. There are difficulties. There are hurdles that we need to overcome. But like, how do we overcome them? And when we undertake the work of restoration in our lives, we can expect to face opposition on different levels. I'm going to be talking about how we can, we can face opposition from beyond the river and from within the camp. 
And that's what Nehemiah is going to show us this morning. So to begin, I want to, I want to look at Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9 through 10. Nehemiah says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. This is official business, y'all. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Right, so first we have this opposition from beyond the river. And so for people like Nehemiah, remember, he is traveling from Persia, the kingdom of Persia. And so this term beyond the river was a term used to describe the area west of the Euphrates River. And it included all the people that lived like near and around Jerusalem. And so for Nehemiah, when he arrives in Jerusalem, it was a way of saying that these were the people who lived close to us, but they were not one of us. These were the people that were just like around, surrounding our city. They were a nearby force surrounding Jerusalem that when they found out about the reconstruction, they sought to discourage and to demoralize and to undermine the people repairing the wall. They, they thought that if they could just like apply the right amount of pressure in the right kind of way, well, the Jews, they would just stop. They would give up. They'd say, okay, I can't do this. And for you and me, the opposition from uh, beyond the river represents like the external pressures that we face in our life. It's like the outside voices around us that, that speak into your circumstances. They speak into your decisions. They speak into your life choices. Here's what it looked like for Nehemiah and the people building the wall. Chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, it says, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry, he was greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? I mean, will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he jumped in. He said, yes, what they're building, man, even if a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. What a joke. We see in another place, chapter 2, verse 19, it says that when Sanballat and Tobiah and also this other guy, Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us. They despised us, and they said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? How dare you? We know what you're trying to do. I want you just to try to like notice like how these voices show up at the city walls. Like they're coming at the Jews with rage, with ridicule, with shame, and with blame. Rage, ridicule, shame, blame. I mean, is it just me or does this seem strangely relevant to the world that we live in today? Because I feel like there's a lot of this going around these days. There's a lot of raging. There's a lot of ridiculing. There's a lot of shaming. And there's a lot of blaming. I mean, whether we're talking about the overall voice and tone of our culture, of mainstream media, or how about all those voices out there on social media 
where they criticize and scrutinize and shame and belittle you for just about anything that you do, for just trying to live your life or do what's best for, for, for your life or for your kids or for your business or for your health. Or maybe the voices from critical neighbors or nearby people that, that feel the need to impose their fears onto your life. And I know for some people, some of you that I've spoken with over the last year, the critical voices that have applied the most pressure are coming from family. It's hard, it's painful, it's disorienting, it's confusing. And I don't know about you, but I have, on many occasions, I have felt completely surrounded by negativity and criticism. And even, even when it's not like coming directly at me from a specific person, like I can't always just pinpoint like the exact voice or location it's coming from, and it's not like a direct word at me, like I still feel oftentimes like this underlying current of anxiety just flowing around me, this underlying current of tension. And, and so I feel this apprehension uh, when I want to just carefully piece together things in my life, things like my relationships and my community, my children's community. I want to rebuild that for them. Things like re-engaging uh, and, and being involved in ministry again and just re-engaging in society and just other parts of my life. And as you attempt to re-engage, reconnect, restore, rebuild that which was lost over the year, there, there, there will be pressure from beyond the river. There will be voices from without trying to insert themselves into your life. And if you're anything like me, the cultural atmosphere of criticism, of rage, of shame, of blame, I mean, it can feel so discouraging. It can feel exhausting, can't it? And just the anxiety that it can build in your life can be hard. But unfortunately, this isn't all. This isn't all we're up against because not only do we have opposition from beyond the river, but we have opposition from within the camp as well. We have opposition from within the camp. We see uh, in the story of Nehemiah, uh, chapter 4, verse 10 through 12, we see that there are not only voices outside of the city walls, but now there are some voices stirring within the city walls. It said that in Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble here. And by ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Rumors were starting to fly. It said, and our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And at the time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions, and they, and they said to us ten times over, you must return to us. Stop. Come on. You see, there were whispers from within the walls that, that everyone was burning out and couldn't do it. There were whispers that the task at hand was just too big and that their ability was too small. There were whispers that the project was too ambitious and their commitment too misguided. And there were other Jews spreading rumors that the enemy was coming and they needed to get out now, right? Like, this isn't going to end well. Come on, don't be a fool. Stop this madness. Right? The mentality was like, hey, this is great and all, but perhaps it's just not worth it. Is it worth the effort? Is it worth the pain? And how many of you know that the opposition that we face doesn't always have to come from outside voices speaking into our circumstances, but often the greatest resistance and criticism, criticism can come right from within ourselves, right from within here. 
that when we begin to do the work of restoration, like in our friendships or in our communities or in our, our families, our relationships, a subtle whisper from within can start to chirp and to speak up, why bother? This one's just too broken. Come on. Don't you see? Like, this one's beyond repair. Just cut your losses and move on. Find something else. Find something new. Come on, it's pointless. Nothing's going to change anyways. It'll never be like it once was. You're just going to end up more hurt and more alone. Why should you be the one doing all the hard work here? They should be pursuing you. Come on. Be realistic. It's going to be too hard. It's going to be too messy. And as we seek to restore our heart, as we try to rebuild our faith, as we try to find healing in our inner life, or we try to re-engage our dreams and our plans, we may hear that quiet voice whisper, this is a lost cause. You just don't have what it takes to get back on track. What you've lost is far too great. There's no hope for you. Your future's lost. Just deal with it. You don't know what you're doing. You're in way over your head here. You know, the whispers that we hear, the whispers that we experience within ourselves, man, they will, what they do is they will question the legitimacy of what you're doing. They will question the, legitim the legitimacy of what God is calling you to do in your life. They will convince you that you're being foolish. They will convince you that it's not worth the effort. They will convince you that you don't have what it takes. They will convince you to just say, it's easier to just walk away and cut your losses and move on. Now, whether we're talking about the external voices that surround us or our own critical thought, uh, our own crit critical thought life within us, let's not forget also that we have a very real spiritual enemy that opposes any good work of God in your life, right? Just think about like the name Satan. It comes from the Hebrew word Satan, which is, and it's Greek equivalent Diablos, which is where we get the name devil. These names literally mean the one who resists, adversary slander, where he will speak lies into your life, into your head, into your circumstances. Any good work that God is calling you to do to rebuild your life, he will oppose. And rebuilding anything of real significance in your life will be met with some level of opposition in your life. You want to do something meaningful? There will be pushback. And so the question that I want to, want to go to now is like, so what do we do when it comes? I mean, how can you persevere? How can you overcome when you experience opposition on any one of these levels? And I think that the book of Nehemiah, it shares with us three really important words of wisdom for how to overcome opposition in our life. The first one is this, is that we need to have a mind to work. A mind to work. In the story of Nehemiah, chapter 4, verse 6, it says, this is in response, just immediately in response to the threats and the opposition they're experiencing. It says, so we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. 
And what this means is that the people had a special will and a special vision to do what needed to be done, to do what God was calling them to do, right? What moved them forward in the midst of the opposition, in the midst of the difficulty was a determination and an enthusiasm, not just for like the, the actual like grunt work of picking up bricks and stones and, and building them, but for the mission, Right? It wasn't so much the repairing itself that got them excited and gave them hope, but what the work represented. That's what drove them. That's what compelled them. It meant restoring the security of their people. Each stone that they picked up and stacked on another one, it meant restoring the, the, the dignity of their people. It meant restoring the identity of their people. It meant rebuilding community and everything that comes with community. Love, support, celebration, feasting, tradition, worship. Each stone that they picked up represents reclaiming their present life and their future life. Each stone that they picked up was recovering yet another piece that was lost. You see, what helped them overcome the threats and all the saber rattling from their enemies and all the doubt and the discord that was stirred within the camp was that they stayed tethered to the meaning behind the work, not just the work itself. Does that make sense? We see in the story, uh, chapter 4, verse 14, Nehemiah says, when I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, he says, man, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who's great and awesome, and he says this, and fight for your brothers and for your sons and for your daughters and for your wives and for your homes. You see, they knew what was at stake here, and they knew that if they wanted it, they would have to fight for it. And I wonder, do you understand what's at stake in your own work of restoration? And are you willing to fight for it? After spring break last month, uh, many of our middle school and high school students, they went back to school uh, in somewhat of a full-time capacity for the very first time in more than a year. And uh, I've talked to many of them over the last month to just hear how that has gone, what, what that's been like. I know students who, uh, it was their very first time going to their middle school, ever, as a new middle schooler or their high school for the very first time. And many of them have explained to me just how much has changed over the last year and what's been lost and, and friendships and community, of course, being high on the list. And I've heard many students explain just how strange it was to finally go back to school in person after more than a year and to see certain people for the first time in that length of time, and how disorienting it's been, because some people, they first time seeing them in over a year, and they've grown like 12 inches. Like, what used to be down there? Like, what is going on? I don't understand. Like, you have a beard. <laughs> what is happening? Your voice sounds different. There, there are people who have like, like, have made radical changes in their life. We're like, dude, I don't even recognize you. This is, this is crazy. And there are some people who were once considered friends and they now feel like a stranger. Like, can you imagine how disorienting that is to feel like you have to start completely over with people that you once called friend? 
And you're like, man, I don't even know. Like, where do we stand? Like, are we back at just like hello and waving at each other as we pass by? Like, and what, like, what do I do? (laughs) Many of our young people are having to make a decision, man. Do I just cut my losses and move on? Or is this something that I should try to fight for and I should try to save, I should try to recover despite how awkward it might be, despite how weird it might be, despite how difficult or challenging it might be? Is this one worth it? And I think many of us are left with a similar decision for things in our life that we need to ask God to help us identify which ones those are. God, what do I need to fight for? What do I need to pursue? What do I need to recover? What was too meaningful to let go? Because if you find meaning in the restoration, you'll find motivation in the adversity. And if you have a vision for what you'll gain, you'll know that the effort will be worth it. And so as you think about what must be done to recover your friendships, your family, your marriage, your life group, your heart, your dreams, your inner health, we need to not only ask God what must be recovered, but we also need to ask him why it must be recovered. Help me to understand why. Give me a mind to work. Help me to see that vision. What is at stake here? We need a mind to work, but we also need a heart to pray. We need a heart to pray. And this is what we see in Nehemiah's story. We see in many verses, but just to give you a couple, how they responded to the opposition. In verse 9, it says, after the, the, the threats, it says, And so we prayed to our God, and we set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In verse 14, it says, I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. He's great. He's awesome. You see, Nehemiah, his strategy was react less, pray more. React less, pray more. Over the last couple of years, uh, Lindsay and I have been slowly collecting and acquiring uh, proper tools so that we can start doing things around the house. It's another thing to learn how to use the tools, but we've been collecting the tools so that we can fix things, repair things around the house as we want. You know, for the longest time, we just basically had one of those tiny like, little tool kits you get uh, from Walmart. It looks like a little briefcase. You open it up, and there's like a tiny little hammer, right? There's a single screwdriver and that little tiny cute packet of screws and anchors for hanging pictures. That was about it. And now we're still a far cry from having what we'd like, what we need, but we're slowly getting some, some proper drills and bits and wrenches and sanders and saws. And uh, last summer, we even got our very first uh, tool storage cabinet with a bench and a sleek looking, you know, pegboard that we mounted to the wall where we can like organize things all pretty and beautifully. And, and there's something about getting like, like legit tools that makes me feel like more of an adult. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's kind of like when you buy your first couch or piece of artwork. <laughs> It's like, yeah, I feel like I'm growing up, all right. But it's so funny how despite all this new stuff that we've gotten uh, over the last couple years and how beautifully it's now organized in our garage, we still find ourselves sort of like reverting back to trying to fix things around a house in our old jank bootleg ways. Like, like I'll, I'll like walk downstairs into the living room and I'll catch Lindsay attempting to like fix and unscrew something with a butter knife, you know, or like trying to like hammer something down with a can opener. And I'm like, babe, We have put those heathen ways behind us. 
we have sophisticated tools right over there in the garage. Like, I know the, 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 the knife drawer is right there, but, like, dude. But I can't, I can't throw Lindsay under the bus entirely. Like, I've, I, I've done the same thing. Just, like, in December, I was trying to, like, install our Christmas lights. And we have these, like, things that, that we kind of, like, stake into the ground to kind of line our front walkway up to our front door. And I needed to get these stakes in the ground. And without a second thought, I started, like, foraging for a nice rock to pound it in. Just gotta get a good, good rock. Like, oh, you know, I'm just like, just smashing this thing to pieces. I'm like, this just isn't working out so well. And then it dawned on me, like, oh, I have actual tools made for this exact thing. That's like a thousand percent more effective. It's crazy how quickly we default to trying to overcome life's problems and life's opposition with ineffective and unhelpful tools, isn't it? Simply because it feels easier, it's more convenient, or it's just what we've always done. It's like a knee-jerk reaction. We're just used to doing it that way. But what we should really do in the moment when we're, when we're faced with a difficulty or pushback or resistance is just pause just for a second and to consider, like, what would be the most effective and helpful thing for me right now in the face of this? And if you're anything like me, when we experience adversity, we often just simply react. We act first, we think later, and we pray much, much later. But in doing so, we forget that prayer, man, it is the single most effective tool we have to see our way through it. And we can't forget, you guys, that we are indeed in a battle for what matters most in our life. And we need to fight with the right weapons and use the right instruments. Prayer being at the top of that list. Can, can we like not forget that we have the spirit of the living God who is our resource to come alongside us, to empower us, to guide us, to move in us, through us, and for us? Let's not forage for rocks. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 says, For though we live in the world, man, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with, they're not the weapons of the world. No, on the contrary, what we have, man, they have divine power to, de to demolish strongholds. We, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Right, so when we are hit with negativity and criticism and shame and blame, doing things like arguing back and retaliating against a person or even that thought that's discouraging you or opposing you, it's just not, it's not only not going to be helpful, it's not going to win your battle. And Nehemiah, he didn't get into a, like a war of words with Sanblat and Tobiah. No, he prayed. And when the, when the, when the opposition intensified, which it did, it moved from like mockery to actual physical threats. He prayed again. Because those who have no heart to pray will soon lose their mind to work. And I'll admit that I've done a lot of reacting instead of praying the last year. I've allowed the rage and the criticism of the culture around me to get me worked up, spun up. I've allowed the negativity around me to, to drag me and pull me into anxiety and fear. I've allowed the opinions of other people and the critical thoughts in my own head to cause me to retreat into myself. And I have wasted so much energy just thinking about rebuttals and counter arguments to hypothetical conversations. You know what I'm talking about? 
Dude, reacting to opposition in our life like this, it's, it's so exhausting and it doesn't work. So may we react less and pray more and rely on the power and resource of the Holy Spirit. And what's interesting to me about Nehemiah's story is that their prayers, just think about how God answered their prayers for a second. Like, God didn't silence all the voices that opposed them. That's not how he answered their prayers. No, this is what God did. He gave them courage to continue. He gave them wisdom and insight into how to de defend themselves without pulling themselves away from their primary objective. He gave them a will and a determination to persevere through the difficulty. And get, get this, he gave them a sense of unity in the midst of competing opinions and diverse backgrounds. That's a miracle. And ultimately, the prayers were answered not with the elimination of adversity, but with a restored wall in the face of it. That's the win. Silencing the voices is not the wind. It's, it's, it's building up the work of God that's a win in our life. And when I finally decide to just go to Jesus and I pray for his grace, I pray for his mercy, I pray for his presence and his wisdom, the way God shows up often in my life is not out there. He shows up in here. He does something in here. He does something in here. The opposing voices that surround me are, are usually still pretty noisy. But with God's help, they don't rattle me so much anymore. And I begin to feel covered with his peace and with his delight in the midst of the negativity, in the midst of the fear, in the midst of the criticism. And once I, I begin to remember my God and I re remember just how good he is to me, I'm able, honestly, to just start thinking more clearly. I'm less reactive and I'm more proactive in where I need to dedicate my time and my energy. And so we overcome with a mind to work and a heart to pray, and finally, with an eye to watch. With an eye to watch. In Nehemiah, verse 9, going back to some familiar verses here, it says, so we prayed to our God, and we set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Verse 13 said that, so in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and in, and in the open places where there were gaps in the wall, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. I find it interesting that throughout scripture in many places, we frequently see watching and praying linked together. We watch and we pray. We watch and we pray. We live with the posture of prayer, but we also live with the posture of vigilance and alertness and awareness. Yes, we rely on God in our life, but we also have an ownership and a responsibility in our life, don't we? And so Nehemiah responds with prayer, but he also takes action. He posts guards around the clock to protect the builders from the supposed threat. And, and specifically, he strategically bolsters the defense in the places where the wall is, as you know, it's a weakness. You know that, that if any pressure or resistance is applied there, it's going to be some trouble in my life. And just speaking for myself here, one of the vulnerable areas in my life is when I feel like my character is under fire. Oh, man. Or when it, when it feels like someone disproves of me because that's a really weak point for me because I really want you to like me. And so when there's a voice from without or even a voice from within saying, you're a bad person, no one likes you, 
man, I come undone real fast. But what about you? What places do you need to be aware of and strengthen so that you aren't overwhelmed by the external and internal critic? Maybe for you, it's your ego. Or perhaps for you, your vulnerability is a, is a person. That specific friend or family member or person in your life, when that person says something, when that person comes at person in your life, when that person says something, when that person comes at you, when you hear rumors from that person, man, it creates a ton of stress, creates depression, you just shut down in your life. Or perhaps for you, that place of vulnerability is a specific topic or subject. Now, whenever somebody starts harping on that one issue, man, you just like, you feel the anxiety bubbling up. You feel overwhelmed and collapsed by shame. And you feel anger. You just want to bury your head in the sand or you just want to go savage and clobber everybody around you. And I can't help but think of 1 Peter 5, 8, where he said, man, be sober, be watchful. Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Your enemy, the one who resists in your life, he is looking for a weakness to exploit. And so we watch and we pray. And we need to give attention to those areas that we know that are vulnerable. We need to ask God for some help. We need to ask God to build us up in that area. We need to ask God to help us to grow in those areas, to become more mature in those areas. We need, to, we need help surrendering in those areas and finding wisdom in those areas. We need to go get some counseling, y'all, and get some practical tools for addressing those gaps in the wall. And we need to press into community. We need each other where there's support, where there's accountability, where there's encouragement, where there's, where there's fresh perspectives. And community, you guys, is absolutely critical for watching effectively in your life. There is no way that I could possibly give enough attention and defense to all of the vulnerabilities in my life. But if we rely on one another, it's possible. Even Nehemiah knew that their attention and their manpower would be spread thin. And so their strategy to, for, for watching was to set up a system of trumpets, like an alarm system, right? So they could spread out the defenses across the wall. But anytime there was a threat in one of these weak points, they would blow the trumpet, the alarm system, and everybody would come together in unity to address the threat together. And over the last year... There have been points where I realized, man, I can't do this one alone. I need my people. I need to sound the alarm. I need to find my people so I can go and just vent to them and vent my frustrations to. They're safe. I can do that. There are people where I've literally sounded the alarm, and I'm like, I need you to come to me, and I need you to pray with me. I need to borrow your faith here. I need to borrow your prayers here. I need your help. You need to step into my gap and help me out. You need to encourage me. And this is what it means to be part of God's family. I mean, we're in this together, aren't we? And so we need to rally together, fight for one another in prayer and in encouragement and in supportive presence. And if we are the one getting pummeled, man, sound the trumpet, please, because you don't have to do it alone. Amen? Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us vision. Give us an understanding of what needs to be built back up in our life. Strengthen our hands, Lord, to do the necessary work, to persevere, to overcome. And show us, Lord, how to rely on you. Because you, you haven't left us alone. You have provided the right tools. You have provided the right support, the right people. I pray, Lord, that you would show us how to use them. <laughs> utilize them, reach out to them. Do not be afraid of them, but just remember the Lord who is great, who is awesome, who is with you, who will fight for you. He will not walk away from you. He will not leave you defenseless. morning, Lord, we rely on you and on each other for the things that matter most in our life. In Jesus' name.